0: Recession fears pushed out. Markets see an end to rate hikes and 2024 earnings rebound. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. It's going to be a busy hour. Let's get right to it. I'm Danny Clayton, Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome. Thank you, Danny. And we got Mark Beck, Chief Growth Officer. Welcome to you.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here. Boy, your lead in there makes it sound like we should be heading into the next bull market and growth environment in the economy, Danny. But You know, I think that Derek's perspective would be that maybe we're more in the eye of the hurricane. The question might be, you know, how big is that eye and what is the data going to look like between now and the other side of the storm? I think after we talk through that a little bit, we'll also talk about how you might approach positioning
2: your investment portfolio to mitigate some of that risk. Right, I mean one of the things one of the challenges Mark really throughout this year has been we know the Fed has raised rates at a at the fastest pace in history. And then when we had Silicon Valley Bank go under towards the end of March and the Fed stepped in very aggressively along with the FDIC, that was when the Nasdaq bottomed, interest rates had declined somewhat and there was concern that that c- crisis was going to morph into something bigger. And what we've seen is that damage has been contained, at least for now, and the labor market continues to be strong. And the economic data recently is actually surprised on the upside. We got a good consumer confidence number. We got some good housing numbers. The inflation report on Friday was somewhat benign, although the comps are going to get easier. And by that, I mean, energy prices were up significantly a year ago. They're now down and those comparisons become easier, meaning it's possible inflation could up to in the coming months.
1: And despite some of those upticks that we are seeing that would be, like you said, surprises on the upside, at the same time, what we're seeing and hearing from the media is the recession is coming, the recession is coming. And it's really difficult to kind of navigate through those things and figure out how to balance both sides of that equation. And I think there's some moves from the Fed's perspective that we have to look at, because remember, you know, we had a debt ceiling debate and the treasury was drawing down its reserves. And so that had to get refilled also. So a lot of different pressures from monetary policy standpoint, figuring that out in terms of will
2: we be in an environment six months from now that's going to be slowing gr- earnings growth. I mean, right now, our positioning essentially is neutral. We're a little bit overweight international stocks for valuation reasons. Uh, we're a little bit underweight large cap growth also for valuation reasons. And thus far, you know, we have not seen the rotation back to more cyclical companies that we expect. We do expect to see that in the second half, because if, if the threats of a recession have been postponed, perhaps into you know 2024 or even later, you would expect to see more cyclical areas of the economy and the stock market uh, gain some relatively a performance advantage. In addition, the valuations of those top seven stocks, which many people are now calling the Magnificent Seven, have reached levels that are somewhat unsustainable. I mean, obviously, the businesses are very good, but the valuations are, are very rich. So it's hard to see a ton of upside there. So when you're looking for opportunities, I think you really want to look at stuff that actually performed poorly in the first half of the year, just like at the beginning of 2023, the real strategy was to look at the stuff that had done the worst in 2022 because due, due for a, a reverse. Version of the mean. You talk about that magnificent seven. I love the way that our industry has to put those
1: labels on things. It's very creative, and I like it because you can kind of go back in time and mark those periods, you know, based on those headline-making acronyms that we put together in names. But that one in particular is interesting to take a look at. How dramatic the spread has been between the return. For the first six months of the year, on the Magnificent Seven versus the rest of the 493 companies in the S&P 500. And if you look forward, somehow or another, those two things have to converge, and it'll be interesting to see if that's the Magnificent Seven coming back down to earth, or the rest of the economy moving into a growth cycle.
2: Right, and and, and that's the million-dollar question. And and you know, one of the things about uh, market cap-weighted indices is when the the largest stocks outperform the general market, they simply become bigger in that market as a whole. And as a result, when you've got passive ETF buying and you've got momentum investors chasing those stocks, it can create a very unstable situation where essentially a lot of the relative performance gains can be eviscerated in a fairly short period of time. But when I think about those seven stocks, I mean, all of them, in my mind, are actually very sound businesses. They generate a lot of free cash flow. They're nowhere near as expensive as the tech stocks were at the peak of the tech bubble in late uh, 99, early 2000s. So they're probably going to sustain those valuations for a time. Now, they may have to work them off over time. For example, NVIDIA is trading at over 220 times earnings and almost 50 times revenues. But again, it's in a great position, but it does take time. And these, these chips are expensive. And and the benefits from AI will take place over decades, not weekends. Right. And the valuation move that was been happening over months, it seems like, to digest what might
1: take decades really to materialize. but you know i think about that too in terms of people the perception of risk, and I've had this conversation with a lot of clients, and they say, boy, it just seems like there's so much more volatility in the markets now. But you know, some of that may be driven by that heavy market cap weight that you've been talking about.
2: I think it certainly has. I mean, the the volatility index, which we look at as a a measure of fear is, is trading at around 13, which is about as low a level as it's been in about five years. So there is a lot of complacency out there. And in addition, you know, there are many folks, you know, who are fully invested bears, essentially, they're riding these stocks, but they don't necessarily believe in the valuations. They just have to be there or they'll get
0: fired. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer, Annex Wealth Management. Mark Beck is our Chief Growth Officer. If we can help, our website, AnnexWealth.com, Investment, Retirement Planning, Tax Planning, and Estate Planning. You can hear a podcast version of the Week in Review on demand at the top of the hour, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's also in the Axiom newsletter delivered on Sunday. It is Saturday, July 1st. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. We're going to be right back on 620 WTMJ. Back on the show, a couple of things you can do. Sign up for the Axiom, our free weekly newsletter. Social media, we're all over it, including the Annex Wealth Management YouTube channel with over 1,500 videos that Annex has produced. Lots of searchable content, lots of great learning stuff. Every single Monday morning, we do a SWAT podcast from the Annex Wealth Management investment team. at strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And this Monday, be no different. You can get that on demand on Spotify or Apple Podcasts mid-Monday morning. I'm Danny Clayton, Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer is here. Mark Beck, Chief Growth Officer at Annex Wealth Management. Derek, as we went through the last break, we were having a conversation about volatility and market cap weighting and
1: how it might be impacting that. And I just want to circle back to that a little bit because I think it's really interesting. You know, the S&P 500 is a market cap weighted index, which means the largest companies represent the biggest percentage of that index. And when you think about volatility in terms of risk, and this is, you know, in the eyes of clients where we're having these conversations and they're worried about the big moves up and down in their portfolio and those sorts of things. And you look at that relative to the S&P 500, you can talk about how the bigger moves in those top companies are going to be so much more impactful to the volatility of that index. But then I take that up and I think in terms of you, your, your individual portfolio, thinking about what matters to you if you're a client, maybe you're you know approaching retirement or in your early years of retirement, that's the period where people worry most about volatility and kind of dissect the portfolio into the pieces and think about what each one is doing and how it's behaving in the market environment. And I think that'll be really instructive to help you navigate through volatility as it plays out. So if you think about the fixed income side and we talk about how we position there, but what that does and how you protect that and and then your income producing assets and then your more growth-focused assets for the long term, and yes, they're going to be more volatile and they're going to need to go through those ups and downs, and that's where we look at the longer-term trends to help inform positioning from that perspective.
2: Right. I had a a very long conversation with one of our wealth managers earlier this week, and we were talking about dollar cost averaging. And, and what I suggested to her, and I think she concurred, was that you know, when you think about the portfolio, there are pieces that have performed extraordinarily well over the last 12 months, last six months. And then there are pieces that haven't performed as well, but that we actually still believe are very attractive. If one were to rebalance a portfolio, that's actually where you'd be adding exposure and taking it away from some of those areas that have performed well, because again, we're trying to manage risk. So what I suggested to her is, Let's DCA this way. Let's go fully invested in the areas that we really like that have not participated to the degree that that we perhaps thought they should have. And then let's dollar cost average the area of the portfolio that has done the best. That way we're not top ticking what's worked the best for us. And we're hopefully gonna reduce the drawdowns that would occur if one were to just go fully all in. Because at the end of the day, we're at the end of a quarter, there's a lot of fear of missing out out there. People are window dressing their portfolios. They wanna say that they own the the big seven, if you will. Uh, But the fact of the matter is most people did not. At the beginning of the year, those stocks had had a horrendous 2022. And the only people that actually were fully invested or overweight those were those that suffered a lot in 2022, which we didn't in a relative sense. And I think, again, to connect that back to your personal goals and your personal tolerance for risk is so very
1: important, because what do you really care about most? You care about reaching your goals. You care that the portfolio is invested in a way that's going to help you achieve that. You care about being able to stick to that long-term plan and not making bad investment decisions at the wrong times, because that creates real damage inside the portfolio. And then, you know, you want to participate, right? So yes, you've got some assets allocated likely if you, you know, have a balanced portfolio. You've got some tech stock allocation in there, but now you might also be looking at, well, should I rebalance and maybe i should be adding some emerging markets exposure and maybe i should be looking at you know the dividend yields in international stocks as opposed to us stocks as an example because you know there's a change in monetary policy that is playing itself out right now and so you know that's the kind of forward looking longer term trend that you can position your portfolio for but you need to be able to look over the horizon
2: and not just look at the things that are right in front of your face at the moment I mean, as an example, the S&P 500 is up 16.5% year-to-date. Earnings per share year-to-date are flat, okay? So all of the appreciation that one has generated from the S&P 500 has come from multiple expansion at a time when interest rates are actually moving up. That's very unusual. And even more extreme, on the Infotech side, the, the average return there, about 44% earnings there are also flat. So the the entire gain from the tech sector and fueled only by multiple expansion, which can easily be reversed at a fairly quick rate. So one really has to think about what our second half outlook is, what the Fed's going to do and where the economy is going to go.
0: Derek Felsky, thank you very much. Mark Beck, thank you. Mid-year, the time to revisit your tax planning, especially for high earners and high net worth families. We'll take a break and be back with that next on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management and apologies up front. We are going to talk about taxes, specifically mid-year tax planning. Now, before you turn the dial, hear us out. And by us, I mean Amy Kiskala, wealth strategist and estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome back. Hey, Danny. You know, there's a big difference, and you've taught me this, Between tax preparation and tax. Planning, Tax prep, the process of filing taxes. Tax planning is what you do with the information you gather during the prep, and it's something we assist clients with year-round at Annex.
3: We do. Tax planning is actually the fun part of taxes. It looks not only at your current year situation, but really through your lifetime and even after your death to help identify tax planning opportunities.
4: Did
0: you hear that, ladies and gentlemen, the fun part of taxes? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I know. You work with many of our high net worth clients for their planning, and we are are now in a zone where mid-year tax planning makes sense. So what steps can those high net worth individuals take for mid-year tax planning? What's important?
3: Oh, there's a lot of things that are important for high net worth individuals. And it really starts with last year's tax return. So taking a look at 2022 tax return, just to see what happened last year and where are there any opportunities that we should be thinking about.
0: So you're not looking for errors, you're looking for opportunities. That's exactly right. right.
3: That's the difference.
0: Gotcha. There's concern during mid-year tax planning for high net worth worth clients, what is the concern that they've got?
3: A number of things driving concerns in mid-year tax planning. For high net worth individuals, one of the things on people's mind is the potential sunset of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act beginning in 2026. Now, that might seem a long way away, but it's going to impact both income taxes and estate and gift taxes. And it's really now is the time to really start thinking and planning for what that might look like to see if there's opportunities that can be implemented over the next year or so.
0: But yet even some things this year? Absolutely. There
3: are going to be some things this year you might look at, does it make sense to maybe accelerate some income this year because they'd be looking at paying at higher rates in the future? Or maybe you're looking at the potential reduction of the estate and gift tax exemption amount.
0: Have we looked ahead with those clients that if this sunsets, what will happen?
3: We absolutely do. Currently, every individual has a gift and estate tax exemption of almost $13 million. So for a married couple, that's $26 million. But if that Tax Cuts and Jobs Act sunsets in 2026, as it's scheduled to do, that exemption is going to go back down to $5 million index for inflation. So think about it as roughly about half of what it is right now.
0: So how do we tax plan for that?
3: Yeah, that's really an opportunity. There's this window of opportunity between now and the end of 2025 to look at, do you want to make some larger gifts? So for married couples or individuals, who, when they, if they anticipate their net worth at the time of their death would exceed those exemption amounts, that's when you're looking at potentially paying estate tax. And so one thing you might do is say, well, we've got this window where we have these larger exemption amounts. Can we go ahead and start some planning today that takes advantage of those larger exemption amounts?
0: That totally makes sense. Talking about mid-year tax planning for high net worth individuals with Amy Kiskala, a wealth strategist and estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management. Let's talk about how investments and tax planning fit together. So when it comes to those two things, what should these folks be thinking about?
3: Yeah, We see a lot of high net worth individuals and maybe looking to generate a certain amount of income or cash flow each year to meet their lifestyle goals. And we tend to see this maybe with executives who are retiring or business owners who are selling a business where the sources of that cash flow is going to change from maybe salary and business income to an investment portfolio. So from an investment strategy standpoint, you're really looking at factors like what are those cash flow goals? What is risk tolerance or risk capacity? And coming up with an overall target allocation between your cash, your equities, and your fixed income. Well, tax planning also plays a part because tax planning would look at, can that income or cash flow be generated in a tax-efficient manner?
0: So you're a wealth strategist. Is this something that we bring the investment planning team in with?
3: It is. So we're a team here at Annex, and uh, we bring together wealth strategists, we bring together investment specialists, and tax planning specialists to, to look exactly at that. Is can those pieces come together to generate the cash flow that's needed? You know, for example, what are those cash flow needs look like over the next one to three years, and can we help minimize the? You need to maybe sell a highly appreciated stock at an maybe an inopportune time because we need to satisfy a current need. By anticipating those, we can have a really good comprehensive plan in place.
0: There might be some goals for fulfilling charity pledges. Is, is that the part of the conversation?
3: It absolutely is. For many, high net worth charity is a big part of their planning goals. And when we want to do that in a tax-advantaged way, mid-year is a perfect time to be thinking about that.
0: Year-round tax planning. If you're not working with Annex, are you receiving that kind of detailed planning? We want you to know the difference. Amy Kiskala, a wealth strategist and estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. It's Saturday, July first. Already more to come, including Ask Annex, and a look at prenups and postnups. That's all on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Bottom of the hour, time for news, and for that we head to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Time for Ask Annex. Got a question? You head to our website, annexwealth.com. Look for the ask button. If we can help, and I know we can, you just click that get started button in the studio. Sarah Kyle, Wealth Manager. Hello. Hello, Danny. Matt Morsey is investment team manager. Welcome back. Hey Danny. First one, can you simply explain the difference between treasury bills and treasury bonds? Does annex favor one over the other?
5: Yeah, great question. And really, it's a matter of time frame. So a treasury bill or a T-bill is generally going to be under one year until it matures. A treasury bond is going to be 20 to 30 years. So think really short term or really long term. I'll even throw in a third one, which is a treasury note, which is going to be in the middle of them, which is two to 10 years in general. T-bill, a T-note and a T-bond are really the three, but they're all low ones essentially to the federal government. One other difference other than time is in terms of how they're priced or, or how you would buy them. So with a treasury bill, you buy them as essentially what's called a zero coupon bond, where you are paying a lower price or you're buying it at a discount, but you get the maturity value at the end. So for instance, bonds generally trade also in thousand in dollar increments as well too. So that, that's key to keep in mind. But let's say you wanted to buy a T-bill but instead of paying $1,000 for a $1,000 T-bill, you'd pay $950, but at maturity, you'd get $1,000 back. And so that's about a 5.3% return. So you buy the discount, get maturity back. A treasury note or a treasury bond, you're actually going to pay $1,000 to get $1,000, but you're going to get your interest as coupon payments semi-annually along the time frame. So to get the same yield, about 5.3%, you'd essentially get coupon payments of $53 a year or $26.50 every six months. So a little bit of different in dynamics of how you get paid, time period, maturity is the biggest difference. And in terms of what we like is we always have to look at the yield curve for something like that. And right now we have an inverted yield curve. So I mean, short-term rates are higher than long-term rates. So T-bills are a little bit more attractive from that perspective. But you have to keep in mind interest rate risk. Who knows what the interest rate is going to be in a year or two when that T-bill matures. Next, I've got a target date fund in my employer's 401k.
0: I know with the target date fund, I cannot elect where the dividends go like my other investment account. On my statement, it says, quote, dividend payment to fund shareholders reduce the share price of the fund so does that mean when my distributions go to buy the fund I get it at
5: a cheaper price Yeah. So essentially, anytime within a 401k plan, it's automatically set up to reinvest back into the same fund. So whether it's a dividend, capital gain distribution in the fund, it just buys more shares. And the reason why they say it's going to be at a lower price, and this is kind of somewhat theoretical in terms of how this works, let's say it was $10 a share before the dividend. Well, now they're going to pay out cash to you. And let's say they pay out a dollar worth of cash. Well, now that $10 investment's not worth ten anymore, because they sent you one of it. So it's only worth nine. So your $1 dividend is going to go buy it generally at $9 a share than at that point in time. But it depends on how the market moves during that time period as well, too, because you might not get paid immediately when that gets sent out or when they do the math on it. So essentially, you're paying that cash back into it to buy more shares. But the reason why it's lower is because that net asset value is less because they had to send you some of that money out.
0: Okay, next up. I'm 67, retired, and still active in the market, but volatility worries me. Is there a happy medium investment or investment strategy that's safe enough But not subject to market whims?
4: Well, the first word I think of is diversification. That's really key to minimize that volatility. But if that stock market volatility worries you, you should definitely have more of your portfolio allocated towards that fixed income side of the portfolio and then just make sure the equity side is well diversified. But keep in mind less volatility, less risk, less returns. The key is to just make sure your portfolio's allocation reflects your personal risk tolerance so you can sleep at night and not worry about every little downturn in the equity market.
0: Next up on Ask Annex, did the S&P 500 ever outperform the NASDAQ 100? It seems no matter how many times I backtest SPY versus QQQ, Triple Q QQ always outperformed SPY except from 2000 to 2003. Yet, people generally like to recommend SPY because it's more diversified, but Triple Q has outperformed by almost. Almost 5%
5: every year since 2003. This guy should be on your team. Yeah, <laughs> a great question. And it's a matter of risk. It's a matter of what are you trying to target in the portfolio. Like the, the question states, you know, the S&P is much more diversified than just the NASDAQ is. The NASDAQ, especially the Qs, which is really just a, a part of the NASDAQ itself, is going to be large cap growth, largely tech-weighted, some healthcare as well in there too, but it is more specific than the S&P 500. When you think of it from a risk perspective, the volatility in the NASDAQ is about 30% higher than it is in the s S&P 500. So if you can weather all of that risk, then sure, you could take more risk and and have much more exposure to the NASDAQ or the Qs. But risk is really, really important when it comes to investing. You're also missing out on some more mid-cap stocks. You're missing out on more core or more value stocks by only being in the NASDAQ. So most people talk about the S&P 500 because it's much more representative of the overall market than the NASDAQ is. But yeah, the NASDAQ has outperformed. But also keep in mind what the last 20 years have been, which is largely a zero interest rate environment that has helped propped up the more risky parts of the market. That's not normal. That's not natural. And it's certainly not the environment that we're in today. Although the NASDAQ has outperformed this year going forward, they always say past performance is not indicative of future results. I'd keep that in mind, especially when looking at this
4: the key here is the amount of risk you're taking. So sure, the NASDAQ has outperformed the S&P 10 in the last 12 years, but how did you get there? And how much volatility and how much movement in that portfolio did it take to get those returns? A lot of people can't stomach that.
5: And if you'd make all things equal from a risk perspective, the S&P has actually outperformed the NASDAQ on a risk-adjusted basis over the last 23 years.
0: Matt Morrissey, Investment Team Manager. Thanks. Thank you. Sarah Kyle, Wealth Manager at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you.
4: You're welcome, Danny.
0: You've heard of pre-nups. What about post-nups? They're on the rise. We're going to take a look at both pre- and post next. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Note the difference with Annex Wealth Management. Deanne Phillips, Director of Client Learning and Development at Annex Wealth Management, also a CFP, CDFA, and a Wealth Manager. Welcome back. Hi. Many of us are acquainted with the phrase prenup or prenuptial. When some famous couple divorces, you'll hear people ask, do they sign a prenup? But prenups and even postnups are worth discussing in certain circumstances. And that's what we're going to do with Deanne Phillips. And in fact, as we list her title, she is a CDFA. And can you explain that?
6: Certainly. So financial planners, and I am a CFP, we have Dozens of CFPs on staff at Annex. Their role is to help people achieve their financial goals regardless of whether they're divorcing or happily married. Now, conversely, accountants, so CPAs, typically confine themselves to examining the details of a present day scenario. But if called upon to participate in a divorce proceeding, they might calculate the taxes on dividing property combined with the effect of child support, spousal support, over a very short period of time. But those accountants don't typically project further into the future. So to best meet the needs of a divorcing client, a blend of those two ideologies is really needed. And that is what a CDFA or Certified Divorce Financial Analyst is. That role is to help both client and lawyer understand how the financial decisions made today will impact the client's financial future. And based on certain assumptions, of course, they take a look at the whole picture.
0: So what got my attention was an article titled Women, Listen Up, if you aren't going to be the high-earning spouse in a marriage, you're going to want to consider prenuptial or postnuptial agreements. Don't want to stereotype; there are stay-at-home dads,
6: right? Many people jump to the conclusion that if a prenup is discussed, it means that someone with substantial assets is trying to keep the spouse from getting anything if they split. And this is really a fallacy. In that, that's really about making sure that if there's a split, both parties are satisfied potentially, with the outcome based on perhaps a disproportionate allocation of assets when the marriage begins. But actually, it could be debt that one person comes to the marriage with or assets. This is the time before the marriage that the non-moneyed spouse really has to negotiate their package, particularly important for those in work roles where one earns money and one might act as a CEO of the household, let's say. So stay-at-home parents, for example, while that is traditionally a one who stays at home yes Danny it could be a man and it certainly was in my personal household I went to work full-time and he was the glue in the household for the kiddo
0: is this true Stay-at-home spouses who have been in marriage after 10, 15, or 25 years have essentially given up their earning power. Well,
6: the problem is when you truncate your career in the workforce for a stay-at-home career, it's hard to put a monetary value on that. While child support is set, particularly I'm talking about Wisconsin here, spousal support isn't a set formula in Wisconsin. It's negotiable. So there are many variables that impact if a spouse can return to a career, especially as we all age. Remember, one-fourth of divorces are are over the age of 50. They're called gray divorces.
0: Prenups, obviously, before marriage takes place. Is a post-nup something that goes into place when a spouse decides to stay home? And why is that important?
6: Yeah, but again, it's hard to demonstrate monetarily what their lifestyle is and why they can't earn any more. Remember that a marriage is, among many other things, a financial contract. So entering into it with a financial understanding can potentially help down the road if a split happens and emotions engage, not to mention the cost of divorce. And that can add up if you're especially trying to determine after the fact what the lifestyle would be returning to and why they can't go back to their career. Usually for post-nups to be valid, most parties must show that they're getting something out of the agreement and that neither party is at a disadvantage. So post-nups might be harder to enforce, particularly in community property or marital property. states.
0: What should be in a prenup or a postnup?
6: Well, the biggest concerns are property division, spousal support, and business interests that come to mind. Equitable doesn't mean equal in most states, so while it is about the split if a marriage splits, it's also addressing if either has substantial debt like student loans, or maybe one of them is expecting a large inheritance or owns a business.
0: It's complicated. How would Annex help navigate this process if it was needed?
6: Well, we aren't a law firm, so we don't draft the documents, but certainly we can make referrals to attorneys who can draft for our clients. And as my CDFA role, I will sit with anyone finding themselves in the middle or end of a splitting process and review the process itself, you know educate them on that, work with them and their wealth manager here at Annex on how they will look coming out of the split, so on the other side of divorce. Like any transition, there are uncertainties that our planning software and advisors can help address.
0: Let's not assume everybody marries young. Is this more important for second marriages?
6: Yeah. Now, often we see more seasoned clients deciding to marry, and sometimes they have children from previous marriages, and they want to protect those kids and protect those children's inheritance as well as take care of their new spouse. This can require some nuanced estate planning specifics in this area, and this is important to many of our clients, and that's why we have several estate planning attorneys on staff here at Annex as well. Again, We don't draft the estate planning documents, but we educate, we help them on the decisioning process so that the client's wishes are met and their children from a previous marriage aren't accidentally disinherited, for example.
0: Dean Phillips, Director of Client Learning and Development at Annex Wealth Management, also a Wealth Manager CFP and a CDFA. Thanks for joining us.
6: Thanks for having me.
0: It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, Saturday the 1st. We're going to be back and wrap things up. Coming up next on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, 620 WTMJ. We're back. And by the way, if you came in late, you want to hear the whole show, you can hear it as a podcast starting at the top of the hour. You can do that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Danny Clayton. I'll in the studio by Brian and Chief of at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So we're going to do a little forward-backwards, but let's start with backwards, right? So is an economist look more backwards or forwards, or are you both? Are your head on a swivel?
7: A a little bit on a swivel. You know, they oftentimes talk about how an economist, uh, you know, they're two-handed. I think it was Harry Truman who famously said that he wanted a one-handed economist because we're always saying, on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that. But then also as far as the data, most of the data that we get is backwards-looking, meaning that it tells us where we've been. But then what we try to glean from that is, are there any parts of that that suggests what might come ahead. So it's really a lot of teasing out, okay, what happened? What are these relationships? And then what does it tell us about the future? And this past week, we got um, quite a bit of backward-looking data.
0: What was the probably the top on your list?
7: Uh, some of the more interesting things, everybody has been wondering about when is a recession coming? And I think that when we're thinking about a recession, we have to think about the definition. A lot of people point to the National Bureau of Economics economic research, their business cycle dating committee, when will they decide it's been a recession? Have they
0: said anything? No,
7: and they won't. That's just it. So they are very backwards looking. Uh, A lot of the economic data that comes out, it is subject to revisions. A good case in point. This past week, we got the first quarter gross domestic product numbers, the final revision. They call it the final revision, but it's not really. They're going to be revising these things for years. But it came out with a preliminary, then a second, and then finally a third look at the data. And that was a huge adjustment. It went from a 1.3% growth to 2% growth on an annualized basis. That was a pleasant surprise, suggesting that, oh, maybe we had some better momentum in the first quarter than what we originally thought. And so these business cycle dating committee people, they're going to wait at least eight, nine months, if not longer, in order to say when a recession may
0: or may not have occurred. I'm seeing more in the media of different analysts say, why can't we let go of this fact that we have to have a recession or anytime soon? Do you feel that as well? A little bit. It seems like we've been on recession
7: watch ever since the COVID recovery began. Uh, Everybody seems to be waiting for mm, when is the next shoe to drop. This must be unsustainable. And in all honesty, you know, when you kind of look at the policy response to COVID. It did look unsustainable as far as, you know, we were in a big hole, you had massive fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, but then it seemed to go a bit too far. And the Fed was a little bit too slow in responding to the economic data. And I think that's what got people on recession watch ever since maybe March of 2022, when the Fed first started hiking rates, saying, "Up, oh, the party has to come to an end soon.
0: Is the consumer propping things up? Are they the only ones that, I mean, there's many other factors, right, but we're spending still.
7: Yeah, as far as categories, right, there's obviously nuances to this, but as far as consumers versus businesses versus government, government spending is still positive. If you think about the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, as far as the infrastructure spending from their businesses, there's this divide between those that are more service oriented and more globally oriented versus those that are manufacturing and especially domestic. A lot of businesses in the S&P 500, they don't just hitch their wagon to strength of U.S. consumer spending. They're really hitching their wagon to global growth. And that's one of the reasons why
0: the market can move very differently than the economy. Let's look forward. And next week, even though it's a shortened week, it's a big week.
7: It is a huge week. Yeah. And it's uh, going to be intense. You know, it's shortened, but with a lot of data, we have the ISM manufacturing numbers coming out on Monday. Those are really important to me because those have some forward looking things in there about what might come. But then it's really at the end, we've got the employment situation report. That's probably the biggest one. What's the unemployment rate? What's going on Which with wage growth? The Fed is really keen on seeing some slowdown in the labor market. And are we finally going to see
0: that? Right. And if the Fed sees too much that's going, quote, too well, we'll probably get more rate hikes. That is correct. Yeah. Chair Powell has said that he basically has an open mind
7: as to whatever they do at the July meeting. July 25th and 26th is when they meet. The employment situation report is probably one of the biggest one. And then after that, you're going to be getting the inflation numbers. Those are really the two biggest data points between now
0: and possibly the next rate hike. Brian Jacobson is Chief Economist at Annex Wealth Management, always busy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Folks, if we can help, and I know we can, head to our website. What we do is investment and retirement planning, tax planning, and estate planning. We do it as a fee-only fiduciary. Let's just have that casual conversation. It's an important topic. Know the difference. Only takes a couple of minutes. There's no obligation. Click that Get Started button at AnnexWealth.com. We'll be back next Saturday at 10 o'clock. Have a safe and a happy 4th of July. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, 620 WTMJ.